is good to be with you this morning. I'm so glad that you have come out on President's Day weekend when you could be doing a million other things, but I'm glad you've come to be here with us, to study Ecclesiastes, to renew your faith, to engage in the reality of God once again. So I'm Steve, and I am the senior pastor of FBC. Um, This morning, I want us to just begin by wrestling with a question that I've been uh, wrestling with as of late. Why? Um, Because I've noticed this question floating around in the background of our lives, only to make it more prominent in the foreground with this COVID pressure that has been upon us. It's a question we're answering when we buy those new clothes, or when we're considering a relationship with that person, or when we're complaining about something, or when we have intentional emotional reactions of grief or anger or fear, or when we keep scrolling through our media, our social media feed, or the queue on Netflix. It's a question actually that I hear reflected in much of the political bantering going on, the financial reports coming out with the market's volatility and the advertising that bombards us, That question, what will it take for me to be satisfied? It's not just the Rolling Stones who sang about this. Uh, We all long for satisfaction, for that hunger in our soul to be filled. And that hunger uh, feels more desperate. It feels more pronounced these days with what the pandemic has taken from us or simply uncovered about us. So how would you answer that? What would you say it would take to be satisfied? For COVID to be over and done with? That would be great. No complaints if it were to happen. But, you know, we've lived unsatisfied in a world without COVID, so I doubt that will do the trick for us. So what about if a million dollars were plunked down in your retirement account, in your bank account? Would that do it? If that special connection with that person were to finally happen, if your degree would finally be done, if that uh, promotion would finally be achieved, if we would finally get that gratitude, that recognition, that congratulations that we deserve in that one area that no one has seen anything about, if we'd finally figure out how to make God everything in our lives. What would do the trick here? Would any of that truly answer this question? In Ecclesiastes, we've been sitting at the feet of the preacher, learning to live. And so part of his course of wisdom for life, the preacher takes up this question of satisfaction. And he even sees a very real possibility of it to happen in our lives, despite all of the challenges and all of the bad stuff that might be going on around us. But satisfaction isn't automatic. It isn't necessarily easy. It isn't even exactly what we might expect, yet it is possible if we would grasp what is hollow for experiencing satisfaction to stop looking at it to do that. And if we would embrace the frame, an activity for how satisfaction is actually accessed right now, even here in this room. And so what I want you to do, I want you to take your Bible out, and I, or get your phone app open in your, in your uh, phone. Um, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. 
um, to chapter 6, verse 12, where the preacher, he's going to give us, you know, a collection of observation, anecdotes, proverbs, statements to sway us, to move us towards satisfaction. And yes, it's a hefty section. It's on page 555 in those blue Bibles uh, in the seats around you. So ready your attention. Bronwyn is going to read it for us. She's our pastor of discipleship and women. Um, So let's give our attention to this now. From Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5, verse 8, and we'll read through to the end of chapter 6. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. 
for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness, darkness its name is covered. And moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. And what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Now, keep your Bibles open. Keep that Bible hap- app handy. And we're going to work through the preacher's line of thought here in this section. I just want you to pick up the details of this case he makes for us about satisfaction. In the first section there, in verses 8 to 17, the preacher gives us an eclectic list of things there. Um, an observation, a, a proverb, an anecdote, like some multifaceted tool of persuasion upon us to convince us just how hollow prosperity is to satisfy us. So the preacher, he starts us off with an observation. And he says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He's saying when injustice happens with the poor being squeezed for more money, uh, inevitably it means the benefit of some higher ranking governing official. But the money trail doesn't end there, he says, uh, because it's fed upward until it reaches the king himself. And so there's the madness of injustice being systematically imposed for this drive of money. And taking part in that uh, system for prosperity is hollow because it all goes up the food chain anyways to the apex predator, so to speak. And that's his observation, how ill-gotten gain is. Once it's had, it's, it's soon to be gone, on up the chain to the more powerful above. That's how prosperity is hollow. If that observation doesn't exactly hit home for you, um, convince you, um, that's okay. He moves on to a proverb um, to help it get a little bit closer to us. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also a vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
The proverb ironically teaches that money doesn't fill the hunger for money, <laughs> nor does income quench the thirst for wealth. Why? Well, preacher says not so many words. More money, more bills, right? There's more taxes to pay, more investments to make, more financial responsibilities, more insurance needed to protect things, more items to account for in the budget, more donations to make, and yes, more people requesting money of you, those of you who are parents, right? And that means we'll want even more money, which creates more bills and so on and so forth in this vicious cycle. More money, more bills. But for another, he says, more money, more problems. He alludes to that in mentioning the lack of sleep. There are more problems with more money. Tracking the money, investing the money, keeping the money, hearing requests for the money, protecting it from thieves and inflation. Does anyone feel that? And that means we'll lack even the bare satisfaction of sleep from worry, indigestion, insomnia. More money means more problems. And so prosperity is hollow because money and wealth don't satisfy. They only really complicate life. But hey, if an observation doesn't convince you, nor does a proverb, he moves on to an anecdote to maybe the maneuver us home here. He tells us, he says, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Preacher tells us about a real story, about a real guy who kept money to his hurt. That is that he hoarded it, uh, kept his stuff. He kept unused excess for its pure enjoyment of the stuff, not because it actually met a need in him or his family. And that pile of money was lost in the bad venture, you know, possibly trying to accumulate more. Use your imagination here, you know. Some bad decision was made. Some misguided venture was gone on. Some bad investment. He was sued for all he was worth. Took a foolish gamble. Think about it. It's not too hard to imagine. And this loss was so catastrophic that he had nothing to give his sons. Nothing to give his heirs. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Started with nothing, ended life with nothing, and for all of his stress, all of his strain of work, he has exactly a net of zero. Trust me, I've done the math, all right? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Between those poles of birth and death was toil for wealth, eating alone, blind and with full gut of vexation, nausea, anger, angst over it. After all, he had earned enough to get into the millionaire's club only to get kicked out because he lost it all. That's the trajectory of everyone as well. We'll lose every dime we've made when we die because, as they say, you can't take it with you. From the poorest to the richest, every person ends up with a net of zero. 
So prosperity is hollow because of the stress, the effort, the strain, and we still end with bubkis. You see, whether it's an observation, some proverbial wisdom, some anecdotal interaction, prosperity is hollow. Money and wealth simply do not satisfy no matter how much we have nor how quickly we get it. Now, maybe you've all heard this before and you're just nodding your head because we've, we've kind of heard this before. But listen, this is something that you and I actually need to internalize here and here because we live in the West where we're affluent and we're surrounded with affluence. And this is especially true here in Davis, right? We all swim in these waters where, you know, some is good means more is better. Just look at how happy and satisfied they are over there in Davis. Those other people on Instagram, look how happy they are. You know, those people on YouTube and reality TV, they've got it all. We're inundated with this message of money and material possessions satisfying us, but the preacher pulls back that facade and that smiles and beauty and he exposes how hollow prosperity really is if we were to be able to see behind it. In 2018, the Harvard Business School did a survey of 4,000 millionaires in America, asking them not only how much money that they had, but currently how much money they would need in order to be happy. What they did is they asked for their personal level of, their personal level of, of happiness on a scale of 1 to 10. And then they asked them to judge what it would take for them to be at a 10. You know, would they need 10 times more? Would they need five times more? Would they need two times more? Would they need nothing more? And the largest response was 10 times more. That means the person who has $100 million was just as likely as the person who had $1 million to believe they needed 10 times more to actually be happy. In fact, the lead researcher, Michael Norton, indicated that all the way up the spectrum of wealth, basically everyone believes that they need two to three times more to be perfectly happy in life. So if people with scads more money than you and I have, I'm, I'm guessing here, okay. What does that say about our ambition for satisfaction in money? What does it say about the relationship, about how much money we have with satisfaction we'll actually experience? Don't misunderstand me. Money's not bad. Earn honestly. Given an inheritance, it's a blessing. And quite good for it, how it enables to meet needs and opportunities for generosity to bless, along with many good things to enjoy. However, money and wealth is limited to that range. It cannot extend out to satisfaction for us. The old adage is true. Money can't buy happiness. It can buy a bunch of stuff and a lot of other stuff that might make us happy, right? But let's not look to it and treat it as paramount to satisfaction because prosperity is impotent to deliver satisfaction to you and to me. 
the preacher begins there for considering avenues for satisfaction because that's where everyone tends to begin, right? You've had enough money, you'd be finally happy. That was true in his day, it's true in our day, but then he expands his avenues for consideration in chapter 6 there to convince us that satisfaction is in fact elusive in the things we fancy. And he does it with yet another anecdote in verse 2. Notice what he says. He says, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Here's another man that the preacher sees. Maybe you know someone like this. This is a man who has a full portfolio like the other anecdote that he shared. But this time, the man has an additional asset of honor where he's esteemed, admired by those around him, along with the liability of God not enabling him to enjoy it. And so this rich man is admired, a celebrity in the preacher's day, so to speak. But alas, that doesn't even bring him satisfaction just like so many of our modern celebrities, if they're really honest, admit. Then in addition to wealth and fame, the preacher adds in more into this man's equation. He says, if if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has also no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. The preacher envisions additions of lots of children, long life, other chief joys of his day. Almost to say, imagine someone who has it all except the power to enjoy it and be satisfied. And simply begs the question, if we envision someone like this, you know, wealth, fame, long life, family, friends, and if they can't experience satisfaction, then who can? All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering eye of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. His reflection is that we, everyone toils to feed his mouth in search of satisfaction. But every attempt is like eating a meal where we're satisfied only to be hungry again and then goes in search of something else to satisfy. So it's better to see what one already has than to keep wandering appetite to satisfy because, listen, satisfaction is elusive. It's a fool's chase to keep looking for satisfaction in money and fame, family, long life, or any other external thing that maybe catches our fancy. It may fill our hunger, but inevitably we'll be hungry again. It's akin to a cat chasing its tail. Josh Rodnauer is a celebrity, um, probably most known for his work on How I Met Your Mother. Have you seen this guy? Yeah. Um, He gave an ink talk, which is a kissing cousin to a TED talk, um, where he talked about fame in a way that was disarmingly honest. He said this, listen, he said, when How I First Met Your Mother first went on the air, I ran into an actress that I knew and she said, are you just so happy all of the time? And I remember thinking, does she really think that when CBS picked up the show, it left me with the inability to feel anything but unbridled joy? 
But the joke was on me because I kind of thought it would. I had bought into the not uncommon notion that when I taste success, when I get over there, then I'll be happy. But the strangest thing happened. As the show got more successful, I got more depressed. And I kind of had to keep that to myself. The circle of people whom you can complain to about being on a hit television show is unsurprisingly small. (laughs) A lot of people think that getting famous will save you, that it will grant you the life you feel you're owed and spare you certain indignities. I was pretty bummed to realize that rather than lessening or eliminating my insecurities and least attractive qualities, it basically poured fertilizer on them. And Josh Radnauer is not alone in his experience of wealth and fame. Listen to interviews of Tom Brady after he won his third Super Bowl. I lived in Massachusetts. He was big there, right? And he admitted to feeling like there had to be something more after three Super Bowls. Or Jim Carrey, who said he wished everyone would get wealth and fame to see that they aren't the answer. Or Lee Iacocca, who is the first celebrity CEO who said fame and fortune is for the birds. And those are all white men of privilege, along with fame and power and prestige to boot. Satisfaction is elusive. And it simply does not follow from fame, from fortune, from long life, from family, or any other external thing that might catch our fancy. So lean in here. Let's listen to the preacher here. (laughs) Let's listen to those who've been there, done that, and who tell us that satisfaction is not an undeniable reality. Let's hear them and internalize that they tell us it's good stuff, but it is just not satisfying stuff. Listen to them. But do so without despairing. So you can feel this question that the preacher asks. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The answer to that question? You know the answer to the question. Who? God. God can tell the future. God knows what is good. And so lasting satisfaction, it is tied up with God somehow, some way. Without God in the mix, satisfaction is fleeting. It's elusive at best. Something that the preacher has been telling us. Something that we can sense when we hear the others reflect who've been further down the roads that we might want to travel to find it. And so how is God in the mix for us to experience lasting satisfaction? How do we then receive it from him? Well, here's where the preacher starts. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 18. He says, behold, a new thing here. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. 
He commands satisfaction in the good and the simple things. The food and drink, the companionship, the joy of satisfaction inherent in that. Satisfaction is good, the preacher says, and it is possible for our lot. How? Keep going to what he says. He says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God not only provides all we have, but also the power to enjoy them. God's gift is to provide everything we have to the very last crumb and the power to enjoy it to such an extent that notice what he says. He says it's going to be so lavish, you're going to be preoccupied with joy and satisfaction. It's actually possible. So why aren't people with faith preoccupied with joy and satisfaction? (laughs) because it is not automatic, as the preacher has been saying all the way through Ecclesiastes. Yes, God gives the power to enjoy them, but it is not a power where he zaps us with it, right? It's a power we have to receive in order to experience satisfaction. Think of it this way. To to move across a a body of water, um, there are different ways you can do that, right? Um, One way is a motorboat, right? And for the motorboat to move across the water, it depends on us like hitting the gas, you know, whatever that thing is, independent of any wind or waves, right? That's how we get across. And, And this is a picture of us trying to manufacture satisfaction completely on our own. And it's fleeting because eventually we run out of gas. Can't move towards satisfaction. That's the ground that the preacher has been covering all along here. Don't motorboat your way to satisfaction, he says. On the other end of the spectrum is the raft. And for the raft to move across the water, you know, it all depends on the wind and the waves to carry us along. We can't do anything. We just lie back, right? Let it take us. This is a picture of us if we expect God to zap us with satisfaction. And it's untenable, the preacher says. He at least says, you know, you got to toil. Common experience tells us as much. That's not going to work. But to move across the water, you can also have a sailboat. It moves when we look at the wind and adjust our sails so as to harness that wind. We don't move because it's a gift of the wind if we do move, but we don't automatically move without noticing the wind, setting our sails and letting the sails fill with the wind to propel us forward. And this is a picture of of us looking to God and harnessing that winds of provisions he blows our way towards satisfaction. You know, we don't make it happen because it's a gift of God to blow. And the power of the wind alone doesn't make it happen because it requires us setting the sails. It requires us harnessing this power to move towards satisfaction. That is what the preacher is envisioning here. He says that that God gives the power to enjoy and experience satisfaction, but we have to receive, we have to harness that power to experience satisfaction. Let me explain a little bit more here. On God's side, 
He has given the power in the form of giving us all that we have, giving us, you know, that by effort, capacity, generosity, other serendipitous happenings that he's brought our way. There's nothing that you and I have that is not from God, whether it's in your account, in your room, in your house, or in your apartment. Even those containers are a gift from God. And embedded in God exerting his power is that sense of it coming from him, if not the outright recognition that he has given it to us. It's the realization of what Psalm 24 says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It's recognizing God owns everything and that what we have connecting those dots is actually from him directly Indirectly, that's the power spoken of here, both providing for us and our sense and recognition of him doing it. And then on our side, we receive and harness that puff of power to experience satisfaction and acceptance. We accept, it says there, and rejoice in it. Not complaining that we don't have more. Not feeling guilty of what we do have as if it's just too much for us to have. Not focusing on all the bad stuff around us. There's lots of bad stuff, but there's also good. We accept the good from God as he has given it as a gift and say, thank you. Just like we do with Christmas gifts. Just like we do with that birthday gift. That is how satisfaction comes, the preacher says. By us having awareness of where our stuff has come and accepting it as God's lot to us with gratitude. That's it. That's freeing, isn't it? Because none of us have to manufacture satisfaction. We don't have to earn, achieve, gain more than we have in order to experience this. In fact, this is telling us that satisfaction is independent of what we have, so it's actually accessible to anyone with any size, portfolio, dwelling, race, gender, job, stage of life, or GPA. It's simply a matter of connecting our heart with what God has given to us and then accepting it from God as it is and expressing thanks for him giving it. And this is not about something we do once and then we forget it any more than we just kind of set our sails in a sailboat and just forget it. We have to keep setting our sails, so to speak. We keep making ourselves aware of what we have. We remind our heart, that's from God. That's a gift from him. And then we genuinely thank him and enjoy it as God's gift to us. I mean, this is a practice to insert into our daily rhythm, you know? It's why Christians have prayed before meals for thousands of years. The last words that we say before we go to sleep when we're kind of reviewing our day and what went on, you know, 
finding intentional reasons to thank God, like walking around our house and just looking at what we have. That is the secret sauce to satisfaction that God gives and he's designed for us. You see, the preacher's telling us, he's saying, even though prosperity is hollow and satisfaction is elusive, we experience lasting satisfaction with awareness and acceptance. After all, God is not a killjoy. He is a God of joy. He takes joy over his whole creation that he stands behind as the ultimate creator of. And he takes joy over everyone who has become his child by faith in Jesus Christ. With every impediment and with every sin having been removed by Jesus dying on the cross, God freely shares his joy with us as a good father. That we'd experience if we'd recognize it how he's provided for us, and receive it with the heartfelt thanks he deserves. So, let's test God out and see if it just won't happen this morning. What do you say? You up for it? Oh, come on, let's risk it. Come on, right? Let's just take some time to pray. And along the way, I'm just going to give you some space to engage God personally. And I just want to see, is there going to be some glimmers of satisfaction you feel at maybe new levels? Maybe not overwhelmingly, we all glow out of the room here or online, whatever it might be. But let's just see if God won't meet us in this, right? Pray with me, won't you? God, our Father, we are coming to you because... God, you are a God of joy that we so often forget. And you want nothing less than for us to experience satisfaction as you've designed it. Maybe not how we envision it, but as you've designed it. You've provided Jesus, you've sent him to the cross to die for us and then raised him to the dead so that we'd recognize you by faith and share in your joy as your child. And so now, God, take us on a mental tour of our lives. Help us to see and picture what we have in relationships and money, dwellings, furniture, clothes, grades, jobs, and the like. God, so often, all that, all of that is so invisible to us because we just assume it or, or think we deserve an upgrade or more. But now, God, we want to receive it from you because everything we have and everything that we have, you, is some, you have shared it with us. And so we go back to that mentor tour and we just point to it and say thank you in a really heartfelt way to you. God, that satisfaction we sense, even if it's a flicker, we ask that you would increase our capacity 
to receive from you, to be aware of how you have provided it for us, and to accept it with just real thanks. And and we're going to trust you to grow us in this satisfaction to the point that we might be able to lean in and live into what the preacher said of being preoccupied with joy over what you have extended to us and not just focus on all the bad stuff, God. We are so good at doing that. Increase our capacity to notice the good and to thank you for it. We love you as our God and our Father and your gifts are simply a cherry on top of all of it. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, who is the ultimate gift to all of us. Amen.